This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Wedge Lab Podcast. I'm joined today by Anton, co-host Anton Schiefer. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I've been a longtime fan. I mean, yeah. as long as the podcast has been around. This is episode, what, five now? No, Four? it's like, I don't know, eight or nine. I've lost track. What? Are, have there been a bunch that maybe just haven't been published yet or something? I don't know. No, they're all out there. I've run out of episodes. Oh. It's been a rough week. I had I had an episode canceled. So, oh. uh, so later on, we're going to be speaking to City Council Member Steve Fletcher from Ward 3. But to start the show, we're just going to have Anton and I bantering back and forth. I, I was going to say, I think I was one of the first, you know, maybe people to follow your your wedge live account mm-hmm. um and i only remember that because i think at the time we were kind of doing we were going to the same neighborhood meetings we weren't in the same neighborhood but i was in whittier and going to whittier alliance meetings and you were mm-hmm. in Lena. i was in the wedge in the wedge, I was in the wedge of course you would never leave and you were going to basically the exact same meetings but with a different cast of characters um, because I would read your, I would, you know, go to my meetings and then read your tweets when you would tweet about your meetings. And I'm like, Oh, is this the exact same thing happening just across yeah. Lindale? And yeah, that, yeah. that's, that's basically how I've met all my friends in Minneapolis is through uh, live tweeting meetings. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you might be my oldest friend in Minneapolis. Oh, really? Yeah. We met in 2014, right? Um, I, I think so. I mean, it would have been soon after the, I mean, soon after the, you create you created your account, and then pretty soon after was the twenty three twenty Colfax saga, right? I mean, that was kind of your the the first sort of like big hyper local news story, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I I think I spent like the first year in Minneapolis. I didn't make any friends. It's like not not because I failed at making friends. It's just the kind of person I am. Yeah, well, who wants to you know who wants to talk about this guy who only talks about you know twenty three twenty Colfaxes? <laughs> right. Well, that that was before I got. I mean, the way I made friends in Minneapolis was getting engaged in politics because otherwise I, got, I have no interest in other people. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm happy all by myself. But once you start caring about politics, you have to start caring about people and like engaging with people. And so now I have now I have too many friends. Yeah, you have all these people who go to these meetings and be engaged, and it's just, it's awful. Yeah, I understand. There was that time in Whittier when you ran for the board, the neighborhood board, and you were accused of uh, serving up people apple pie, I think. Yeah, I think. Characterized your message? There was, there was a, there was like some kind of next door post about, um, you know, someone had their preferred slate of candidates, and I was not on it. Um, And yeah, there, there was some kind of, you know, like feedback about how I would, you know, something about apple pie was involved. And I think there were some other candidates that were, that were mocked in a similar way. Right. There was a, there was a whole slate 
of candidates who were bad for Whittier that year. Yeah. And yeah. You, you I, was, one I was one of them. Yeah. I think, you know, one of them, I, I think um, Shane, Shane Morin, I think was another candidate who ran. And then um, I know that uh, my other friend of the time, Grayson, I think ran. I think he actually got elected. Um, right. Yeah. But, you know, I think with, with those things, it's kind of like you end up serving on those those boards and you kind of end up serving with a lot of people that maybe you, you know, wanted to get rid of and are, <laughs> it makes for, yeah. you know, uncomfortable conversations or you kind of get burned out on uh, serving in those things. If you're serving with a bunch of people who don't share your values, you know, so that makes it tough. The problem when you run as a slate is you could be the one person who wins and yeah. then you're stuck. You're and stuck. Then you got, it's kind of like, go like city council. Yeah. You got to go to the meetings and everyone else is just, you know, sitting there, live tweeting, you know, the meetings and having fun and, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, they get to have all the fun and you got to take all the blame. So it's like running as a progressive for Minneapolis city council and then serving with 12 other Lisa Goodman's it's like, that wouldn't be fun. Yeah. No. I mean, I, would you want to run for reelection after that? I mean, I don't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't enjoy it. You'd resign. Yeah, exactly. So how have you gotten along over the last year, Anton? Like we're friends. You're I my know. oldest friend. In, you're my oldest friend in Minneapolis, but I don't know what you've been up to. It's because I mean I'm up in Northeast now. I'm up in Steve Fletcher's, right. you know, Ward Three. So you know things are are different up here. And as I say, I'm in Ward Three for like a little bit because I don't think I'll be in Ward Three after the redistricting. I, I think like that's going to change. Uh, you're you're in the part of Ward Three that you think is going to get cut out. Yeah, I think I'm going to be I'm, I'm going to be in Ward One probably. Um, you think? Are you not? Are you not far enough west that Ward, you would be safe? You know, I, I think my guess is that you know, I mean, Ward One goes like in the very you know, from the very top. Like, I mean, it stretches to the river, so um, you know, from from the northeast corner anyway. So, I think it'll. I, I think that like geographic boundary of Ward Three is gonna is gonna shrink, and I think, yeah, Ward One is probably where I'll end up being. I think drawing mental maps of redistricting on a podcast is going to be so compelling. Oh, yeah. That's, this, is, this is prime content. <laughs> this is good content right here. Because uh, I've been wondering about North Minneapolis, like Wards 4 and 5. Like, are we going to keep the river as the distinction between those two North Minneapolis wards? That's what I've been thinking about. Yeah. I mean, they, they could, you know, share or d decide to, you know, stretch across the river. I think that would be fine. I mean... Um, it's just, I think it's been a historical, you know, historic boundaries, kind of like you have the river and you have, um, 94 is kind of like the other, you know, the, like the other huge barrier that like runs through North Minneapolis. And, um, so the, a couple of like, you know, geographic issues, but yeah. So whereas ward three spans the river. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You've got the downtown portion. Tell us about Ward 3, since we've got Steve Fletcher coming up. What, what are the distinctive features of Ward 3? Well, I mean, yeah, we, we've got the, the downtown, I mean, the downtown core. I think Ward 3 has seen, like, the most growth of any ward in the last, you know, few years. I've, I've seen, um, I've seen some, you know, graphs of, you know, how, how much uh, housing growth has happened in other, and, you know, various wards across the city. And I think 3 is far and above anything else. So a lot of the growth obviously like is in the North loop area, but also some on the, you know, this side of, you know, the, the, the downtown Northeast, I guess, which is, you know, the, just across the river. 
Yeah. I think part of Ward 10 will probably get swallowed up by Ward 13 in the south. Oh, in the in the southwest area? Yeah. The, uh, the, east, the east Harriet portion. Maybe Echo. I don't know. Yeah, as long as they, you know, refuse to build more housing in Ward 13, then that geographic area is just going to kind of expand and, you know, until... Which it... means if, if we, by a long shot, somehow elect one of the conservative candidates in Ward 10, there's no way they could get reelected in 2023 because, you know, Ward 10 will have cut out some of the most conservative parts in the yeah. Southwest. Yeah, it's, it, it'll be definitely interesting to see. And something to keep your eye on is, you know, how the redistricting is going to go with the Charter Commission being in the news and being extremely popular among pretty much everyone at this point. It's a big, big Charter Commission fan. Well, I, th- I think we've stretched out as much redistricting and mental maps as we can possibly squeeze into the podcast. What are we going to ask Steve Fletcher? What do you want to know from this guy? I mean, obviously this week has been a pretty, you know, there's been a lot of stuff happening. I think you've probably paid a little bit more attention today in terms of what's happened yeah. with the... So they were recording on Friday and on Sunday, Dante Wright was killed by Brooklyn Center police. And so we've had protests at the the police station in Brooklyn Center, and we've had a couple of days of curfews, state of emergency, and so that's the context for this episode. Mm-hmm. And then the, um, the, the city council took some actions today, I think. Yeah, there was a non-binding resolution against uh, less lethal weapons, so things like rubber bullets and gas which passed 11 to 1, with Paul Masano being the only one to to vote against that. And then there was some conversation around the state of emergency and the fact that the, the mayor is not showing up to city council meetings, which you would think you would do when you grab grab some power that's kind of not not subject to the normal democratic process that we have set up by declaring a state of emergency, you'd think the mayor would show up and kind of talk about that, talk about what's happened. Yeah. And he's, he's been very, you know, not out in front of the news and not vocal in terms of letting people know what's going on. I feel like we kind of have this, we, we have these, this council meeting that happened today was kind of the most, the, the, the biggest like statement I think that we've heard, you know, from the, from leadership at, in Minneapolis, and we haven't really heard much from the mayor's office, which has you know control over MPD. So right, I mean they they do those Operation Safety Net press conferences with various law enforcement uh, officials. Right. Well, I did just get a text from Steve Fletcher who says he's running five minutes late. So oh, we do have well, to that, we have to that's, stretch. That's great. We have to stretch that's, even more, John. So keep stretching. I mean, the the last episode I did I did start cutting some of the boring host banter out of the uh out of the show so okay that's fair we can afford some dead air i guess i'm putting more effort into editing editing the show than i was to start it's like surprisingly hard work <laughs> putting a podcast together yeah no you didn't but, you didn't sign up for this i mean you you, yeah. you kind of did by putting the the stretch goal of having 300 people sign up and yeah. so so how long ago did you start the the patreon like 
It might have been, I think it was around the 2017 election. I think enough people were like, hey, this seems like a lot of work. You should probably have a way for me to support you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I, I think that's, you know, when I noticed that. And then it seems like you got your, was the first surge of support around the, the Carol Becker thing, because that was like a, a, an actual news story all of a sudden. Yeah, I think, I mean, we had a good, good amount of support before then, but it, maybe close to doubled okay. the support at the time, having Carol Becker try to steal the name Wedge Live. So great move, Carol. Yeah, no, I, I think that's... Wedge Live has never been more popular. Yeah, it, it catapulted you into like the mainstream press or, you know, I mean, I all of a sudden once, you know, Tony Webster's writing about you, you know, it's a big, mm -hmm. it's a big deal. Because I think he, he kind of wrote like the definitive article of like what was happening and mm -hmm. I think reached out to, to Carol for comment and yeah, then next thing you know, it's in the Star Tribune and City Pages, and people are subscribing to your Patreon and wanting to check out what Wedge Live is all about. So Yeah. Because with tweets, like people see the tweets. If I put out the tweets with the podcast, there's like all a whole bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff you got to do that nobody sees. Yeah, you got to edit and check for levels and... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's some work that goes into it. I, I can appreciate that. Yeah, and I, I'm not even sure how many people enjoy podcasts, you know? You know, I mean, I wasn't always a big... I mean, I'm not a huge podcast person. I mean, there's a handful that I'll listen to on a on a regular basis, but I'm not, you know, that into them. But I think everyone has their kind of, like, niche interests, and I think this... I think Minneapolis politics is, like, a, a good, healthy niche interest to, you know, that, that there are people who are... that want to hear this material, that want to hear... You know, you talk to council candidates or uh, even just people who have opinions, I think. Yeah, because the danger is you put a lot of work into something that people were never asking for in the first place. Like, what happened to Wedge Live? Well, he's he's off editing his podcast. You're not going to hear about him for a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So hopefully, I mean, hopefully it, you know, pays off or people, you know, feel that this is important content. I mean, you've gone from... It was tweets, and then it was the the website, you know, where you kind of write stuff. And then, mm -hmm. did you have a YouTube? Did you set the YouTube after that, or was the YouTube before that? No, that all that all felt like simultaneous. I don't know. I forget when I started making videos of public meetings, but okay, pretty pretty close. I think that that was like that was high quality content, and still is high quality content. Although it's a little different with the whole, you know, virtual meetings. I mean, you just don't get the same. Yeah, you need people showing up yeah. in the room testifying. Nobody, it's hard to do wacky over the top things over the phone. Yeah, yeah, cause you, you you don't get visuals. Yeah, you need the facial expressions and the gestures and the props. People bring props all the time. Oh yeah, that, those are those are always great. I don't know. I I wonder what development and planning meetings are going to be like when things open up again. Yeah, because I mean, we, are people going to just keep? you know, calling in virtually. I mean, it's not that fun to like go down to city hall and, you know, do that whole thing, but it also is, you know, like a, a show of force or, you know, something when, when you see everyone on camera and, you know, I, I can remember, you know, the, the 2040 meetings when, you know, you had people on camera with the signs and, you know, you see the, mm -hmm. the pan out and you see the big room and things like that. So that, that can make a difference visually in terms of how people perceive things, but how do you think this is going, Anton? Um, I mean, we're chatting, and 
it looks like a guest has joined. So okay, Steve hopefully Fletcher that's a here. hopefully that's a good sign. That I mean, I hope the guest is Steve. I'm yeah. If we so, get a different guest, so my notes for the show, I feel like when I looked at them again, I realized that so many of them aren't questions. I just wrote like a blog post. It's like a, <laughs> I'm going to give Steve Fletcher my thoughts today. Okay. <laughs> hey, Steve. That could be hard. Hey, Steve Fletcher is here. Thanks for coming. Happy to be here. Steve Fletcher is the city council member in Ward 3. He is running for re-election this year. So we had a pretty wild council meeting this morning. Lots of opinions expressed. What message does it send to Black communities like mine to have a military presence with folks walking around with machine guns out and at the same time, in my ward, someone was shot. So we are dealing with a situation in which my constituents are feeling as though they are living in a police state, but not actually being protected. So this is a statement as a Black council member, as a council member who lives on the border of Brooklyn Center, I have not been engaged um, by the mayor or anyone from the mayor's office. I think that if we are going to be declaring states of emergencies frequently now, apparently as a city, that the least that we can do and expect is that if the mayor has the authority to bypass the democratic process of actually the count the council members who most directly represent the impact to communities we should at least expect communication as well as accountability and open forum that allows for conversation and transparency and just you know for context again uh the show was being recorded on friday dante wright was killed on sunday and at this morning's council meeting, we talked. They talked about uh, less lethal weapons, the state of emergency declaration. The mayor wasn't there. Do you want to talk a little bit a bit about the state of emergency? Yeah, uh, you know, the mayor declared a state of emergency um, after Dante Wright was killed. Uh, the mayor has the right to do that for 72 hours uh, before council would need to convene to extend the state of emergency if we thought it needed to go beyond that. Uh, and it would be sort of my expectation that the mayor would also be very uh, judicious about using that and would want to communicate to the public about how decisions were made about that emergency and uh, what this, what the emergency powers were used for. I think it's very important to be extra transparent about that because uh, we're short-circuiting democracy for expediency when we declare an emergency. Uh, and so the mayor was invited to speak to council today, um, as, as is the custom. We've had the mayor uh, visiting council to report on the use of the state of emergency over the public health emergency related to COVID. Uh, and, uh, he declined to attend. So, uh, we had some questions for staff, but honestly, it was not very satisfying asking those questions of staff, because uh, we really wanted to know how that executive power was used. Yeah. Cause one of the things that I'm afraid we're going to get really good at responding to the aftermath of police killings by deploying soldiers, we're going to implement curfews, we're going to do all the state of emergency things, but we're going to fail at actually stopping police killings. Because this happened last summer, obviously, 
it's happened again. It was entirely predictable that it would happen again. I think a lot of people, I think Lisa Bender said last year, who's my council member in Ward 10, that it's going to happen again. Uh, Mayor Carter this week said, We have to ask ourselves, why, how does this keep happening over and over again in America, in the world, in Minnesota? We have to know that the first law of motion is that objects in motion will remain in motion until some force stops it from happening. What do we do to stop this from happening over and over again? Well, so from my perspective, uh, I don't think that we can reform the existing system. Uh, I don't think that we can implement a new training uh, or some new bureaucracy uh, around the practice of current policing. I think that we actually have to change policing. And I think that especially until we show that we're actually willing to do that, uh, I think there's there's been so much talk of reform for so long uh, that if you're one of the officers whose behavior we're hoping will change, you have every reason uh, to uh, shrug and ignore whatever current calls for reform are happening because so many of them have been implemented and resulted in no change. Uh, so I think it's very important that we show that we're willing to totally change how we do things. Uh, I mean, that was why the safety for all budget that we passed was so important. I think there were people who felt like it wasn't enough. But one thing that it did that's very important is it took, uh, by the time we implement the mental health response, 15% of the calls that we've been sending to MPD and is just routing them to other people to respond. Uh, so we're just saying we don't trust that we could change MPD's response. We don't think that we could get a good response from MPD. We're actually going to just respond in a different way with different resources. Uh, and I think that's, for me, that's the most important part of the, the transformation that we need to do that I've been focused on, partially because it's the most important part in some practical ways and partially because it's the part that the council has the most control over. So let's talk about the public safety charter amendment. Yeah. It's conceivable that you could pass that. I think maybe it was you who said this could end up being a very status quo change. Like it could be no change at all. You could pass that and really keep keep traditional law enforcement funded at the same level and not actually fund the alternative responses. The the charter amendment itself is not the change. So that's right. So how how can you use that change and and fill it in, you know, fill in the pieces of that and make that make that happen? So right now, the way the charter is written, it doesn't matter how uh, progressive and forward thinking the council is. Um, there's a lot of things that we simply cannot do. Um, and under the new charter, if you have the right people who have a vision uh, for what public safety could look like, and by the way, uh, I think we could do some amazing things with public safety that could actually produce far better outcomes than any city has managed to produce. Uh, and so I think there's an opportunity for us to build something great. We have to create a structure that at least allows for that. Uh, but just like the United States Constitution, just like our state constitution, the charter is only as good as the people enacting it. Uh, and the charter is only as good as uh, the residents of Minneapolis hold us accountable for making it be. And so it matters a lot that we pass the charter change uh, on public safety this year. It also matters a lot uh, that we elect people who are going to actually take advantage of that charter change to create meaningful transformation in our public safety. 
because uh, if we pass the charter change but elect people who want the status quo, we will still get the status quo. And you, I think you have two very status quo opponents. I that's my assessment. I, I would agree with that based on what I've seen from them. Yeah, I think they are they are both running in the year twenty twenty one. They both appear to be running on a platform of don't change so much on public safety. That I, I can't imagine being in that posture, but that is that is where we are. Yeah, and we elect two kinds of candidates in Minneapolis, like conservatives and progressive, just like national politics. You you have actually proposed things this term to solve problems. It is conceivable you could elect a council member who does no work. We have those kinds of council members in Minneapolis. You could elect someone who does who operates that way. Or who undoes things. Um, you know, I, mean, right. I think uh at least one of them has been vocally opposed to the to the regulations on facial recognition technology, for example. So you know we we could see uh, we we could see a term if this goes the wrong way of people uh, un- unraveling a lot of the progress that we made this term. Although, like one thing about conservative candidates is they don't tend to put in a lot of work oh, to undo things. We can hope that's, that's the one thing, <laughs> good thing about progressive change is that you have to kind of work at undoing it. And that's Anton. Did you want to ask about the uh, facial recognition? Well, you know, uh, yeah, I actually like had that in a, a as a question, but we can talk about it now. Um, I, you know, I just wanted to talk about. I, I know that you kind of led the effort on that, and I just kind of wanted to ask you about your experience passing, like you know, something that isn't necessarily popular or like you know immediately news. It's not like there's a groundswell of people that are talking about this, but I, I still feel like it's an important issue. Um, you know, what's it like kind of, you know, having to, to do that or, you know, convince other council members that that's important. And then also it, it relates a little bit to the issues that I've heard around police policy. I mean, if we've all kind of heard that city council can't really talk, can't pass ordinances that pertain specifically to police policy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this ordinance doesn't seem to have that that issue. I know it's a citywide thing. So uh, what, what's the kind of the difference uh, in terms of how this is, how you structured that uh, to deal with that issue? Sure. So the, uh, in, first of all, in terms of the legal sort of how, how did we have the authority to do it? Um, we had the authority to do it uh, because we applied it to the entire city. It wasn't about policing. Um, we're, we are allowed as the city council to pass ordinances in the city. Um, and, uh, it, it's not, it, it is true that it will probably impact MPD the most, at least in the short term, uh, because police departments have been somewhat on the vanguard of using facial recognition technology, but that they're actually not the only application. Um, so we've seen, uh, some very weird proposals for interactive kiosks uh, come through public works or other departments um, where people are trying to install smart cities tech that's not very thoughtful about data privacy. Um, so there actually are reasons that we wanted to rein in facial recognition that weren't about policing. And so that was uh, part of the distinction that we had to look at. Uh, so we are not allowed to pass police policy, but we can pass an ordinance and then police afterward to comply with it, just like every other department. Um, and so that was the differentiator there. But working on that issue, that was one of my favorite things to work on this term. Uh, and it, it was, what's interesting about it is it's, you know, you said it wasn't popular and I actually kind of disagree with that. It's actually, it, 
it's popular with just about everybody I talk to about it, but the level of heat on it is very low, right? Like it's not the first, second or third thing that people are talking about. But when you talk to people about it, everybody's at least in the back of their minds, a little bit concerned about data privacy and recognizing that at some level, uh, their rights are being intruded on in ways that they weren't necessarily, that we haven't necessarily contended with. Uh, and so I think people have appreciated me working on it. There's been a really good dedicated core of people who really do care about that issue, who've been driving the work, who've been uh, great partners. And I think that that Post Me Coalition has been really effective at just continuing persistently to keep focus on that issue and uh, to keep working on it. Um, and, you know, we were able to get one piece of it done. Uh, they want to do a broader uh you know, piece of work on surveillance technology and military technology generally to make sure that we have uh, a set of guidelines about what technology our city is using. And I think that's um, a really good idea. I think it made sense to split facial recognition off so we could get that done more quickly. Um, but I actually think there's more more of that work ahead. And the, uh, I, I actually do think that whether uh, whether people are yelling in the streets about it or not, data privacy is one of the key issues uh, facing us in the next 10 to 20 years that we want to make sure our city is ahead of. You know, the, the surveillance issue is going to, you know, become probably a, a bigger issue, you know, going forward. I think some people are becoming more and more aware um, over the last year. You know, I mean, we have people in in uh, South Minneapolis that, you know, you have these helicopters flying overhead all the time. And, you know, we've seen with, with Black Lives Matter uh, protests, you know, being being surveilled with, uh, you know, various things, you know, whether it's uh, the the spoof cell phone towers, you know, called the MC catchers and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, restricting the the use of that. Obviously, with these types of things, you only or we only within the city have the authority to restrict that that use within MPD and not necessarily through uh, other law enforcement or uh, partners. That, that that's that's my understanding. Correct. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. So we, we explicitly can't pass laws that apply to other levels of government. Um, and so I think that, but I do think we set an example, right? I mean, uh, one of the ways that we use uh, cities become the laboratories for a lot of good policy, uh, where we pass it first and then eventually the state catches up. Eventually, uh, the federal government catches up maybe if ever. Um, but a lot of times, uh, a lot of the best ideas we can get implemented at the local level and, uh, it takes off from there. So there, there's a there's a value in other jurisdictions in us doing it, even if we don't have the ability to directly regulate. Is it back to me? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're <laughs> you're gonna say back to you. You're the John. you're the, you're the host. <laughs> I'm just the co-host. Like, I mean, I'm. Let's talk about something that's been frustrating to me. Like I had, I had writer's block for most of the last year because of the the crime and safety politics in Minneapolis. Like it made no, the conversation started not to make sense to me and I didn't know how to respond. And so I didn't, I didn't write a whole lot, even though I was thinking about it a lot. And so we've got a political movement that sprung up in the city centered around the idea that Minneapolis failed to adequately fund its police department rather than a well-funded police department failing catastrophically. So can you talk about, I mean, I've seen you get ripped apart on WCCO or going to the downtown Minneapolis Neighborhood Association. It feels like we, we just don't have a shared understanding 
of what's been happening and like the ways that our existing system is not failing because the risk feel it feels like to me the risk is in what we have not in what we might develop to replace it yeah i think the way the way people have been absorbing information uh this year has has taken the conversation to a very frustrating place because we're not even operating from the same set of facts often um the way the way rumors spread about crime I mean, it, it is a common occurrence that I will get calls that say, what are you going to do about all of the terrible break-ins and burglaries that have happened, you know, on this street? Uh, and I call the precinct and say, what aren't you telling me? And they're saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and there's just like rumors. I mean, I, I'll hear about like a shooting in Gold Medal Park and it turns out there was no such thing. Um, and so there are people who are just, furious with me for not addressing imaginary crimes. And then anytime I talk about that, people get furious that I'm making light of crime. Uh, and of course I'm not. And there actually is serious crime happening. And anybody who cares about the city cares about that and wants to see uh, everybody experience a high level of safety. Um, but we get to this place where I think the, the, the really dangerous phrase that I started to hear uh, was uh, perception is reality. Uh, and, and it is very much not, we actually can't make policy, uh, to address perception. We can, we can try to solve things that are actually happening. Uh, we can't actually make a policy to solve things that people perceive to be happening. Uh, and in fact, perception, a lot of times is where racial bias comes in. Perception, a lot of times is where people's assumptions about each other comes in, in ways that is totally counterproductive to, uh, a functioning society. And so we really are in a place where that conversation has been hard and, and we're not operating from the same sort of facts. So I try as much as possible to actually point people to open data portals to show like you can all look up the same information and we could actually be at least operating from, from some common numbers uh, and from, and from yeah. some common understanding of what's happening, but it's really hard. And even, even if you acknowledge that crime has gone up in a really bad way in the city, like the ex explanation for why that is, from my perspective, can't be that, you know, the city council defunded the police department because you didn't take away a single officer. We're hiring cops as fast as we can. Or in right the end, now, a single so. dollar because, uh, you know, the executive leadership enforced no discipline for just blowing over overtime. And so as much as, uh, you know, we simultaneously got beat up for uh, proposing to cut money from the police budget. Uh, and then I, I would bet that when we get to the end of the year and we look at uh, how, how overtime gets put in under these emergency declarations and how money's gotten shifted around, uh, we're not going to find that we even actually succeeded in cutting any money. And so I, I yeah, I, I think the, the understanding of what's happened is really strange. Um, and, and I also think it's really, if you look at the crime stats, one of the things that you see is that we had a terrible quarter um, it, over the summer, right? Like Q3 uh, 2020 was really bad in the city um, by just about any measurement. And then it's been steadily dropping ever since. And it is counterintuitive to everybody's argument that crime could be steadily dropping 
at the same time that we've had the lowest police staffing level uh, right. that we've had in decades. Uh, if police staffing correlated to safety, that shouldn't happen, right? So we ha- we're all having to reckon with, um, it, you know, actual facts, which can be, you know, really pesky things. There are things that are challenging about what's happened over the last year to anybody's worldview. Uh, but certainly, I, I, I think that um, this year has been a, because of the choice that a huge number of officers made to leave at the same time, it's been kind of a, uh, fascinating unplanned control experiment in what police staffing levels actually do and don't correlate to. Uh, and we've seen things, you know, we've seen crime steadily dropping since that attrition started. Yeah. The, the police staffing by population conversation is frustrating because you can look, I don't know if it's Detroit and Kansas city, you can look at some really high crime cities that have lots of cops per capita and it's, apparently not making a difference there. So people throwing around stats about that. Yeah. Is this, is this something where like, I mean, can we ever really, I guess, go? is there somewhere where we can reconcile with people's perception? I mean, it, it feels like a lot of people are getting their, you know, there's a certain set of people who get their news from Facebook, you know, and from next door and from, was it the citizen app or whatever? I mean, where people are getting like this kind of like barrage of, like crime, 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 you know, it, it, it's happening all the time. Is there any kind of way that we can reconcile people's perception with what's actually happening? I mean, I feel like we're, we're kind of getting to this point where people hear this all the time and are getting like afraid to leave their houses just because, you know, they input, they, they take in news from these sources. I mean, is there really a, a, a counterbalance to that, um, that, that we can make? I, I think so over time. I, I, I think some of this is about new access to information and also new social patterns where you're absorbing that information in isolation in different ways. Um, so, you know, one of the things that that forces us to leave our houses so that we don't let those fears overtake us is that we get the opportunity to see each other. Um, you know, you leave your house to go to work and you see that everything's okay. Uh, we have opportunities to meet up. If you're basically sitting in your apartment all the time and watching Citizen and you're just absorbing information that makes it sound scary out of context and you're not getting the chance to see it in any other kind of context, uh, I mean, I understand why that's created a, a a set of fears for some people. We have to overcome it, right? And I think part of that is going to be about socially reinforcing resiliency with each other. Right. Like, I think that there ought to be a little bit of uh, a point of pride that like I live in a city and a city is a place where all kinds of diverse activity happens. And I'm not someone who gets thrown off by seeing, uh, you know, something a little unusual happen. Uh, I'm not someone who lets that just, you know, tank my whole day. Um, And I think a lot of the a lot of the places where when I've traveled to other cities, people have a sense of pride. Like I live in the city, you know, I'm someone who's, uh, you know, sort of tough, tough enough or open-minded enough or uh, adventurous enough to be a part of this, you know, great social experiment. And, and uh, um, I think right now there's actually something different going on, which is actually a socially reinforcing almost class performance of, um, fear as evidence of a kind of 
uh, uh, class status uh, of a like, uh, or as a kind of performance of of social maturity, um, where you know getting together in your neighborhood group and talking about how terrible everything is because a bike got stolen out of your three hundred unit apartment complex is is um, is like. Uh, a, a kind of social reinforcement. And so people are reinforcing each other's uh, discomfort right now uh, in a way that I really hope we get past because it's not a, it's not a sustainable culture for a city um, uh, for everybody to be putting all of their energy into reinforcing for each other how bad everything is in a way that spirals well beyond any real problems to solve. Minneapolis is actually a pretty great place to live. Right. That's, that's why we all live here. Um, I could feel the citizen app kind of changing my outlook. Like it was, it was messing with my head. I, I kind of enjoyed getting the like 50 people just beat up a guy. Like I know that that just, that didn't happen in uptown just now. Cause I was there. <laughs> so, you know, burnt food in an apartment building. There's some fun parts of the citizen app, but uh, like it was messing with my head. I was checking those notifications too often. Well, and the, and the the problem is that when you when you hear people exaggerating and when you see these things that you that are that are kind of hyperbolic, uh, we end up in a place where then we're not all taking seriously the things that we actually should be trying to address. Because um, you know, underlying all of this, like the reason we're even having this conversation is that there is actual crime, right? That there are actually public safety issues that we should be figuring out as a community, how do we resolve this? How do we prevent it? How do we respond to it? Um, how do we uh, reduce the incidences of, of this in the future? And, and I, I think that that's something that gets lost when everybody's uh, making a big deal out of everything uh, and sort of losing a sense of perspective. And so I, I, I really do hope that as the pandemic ends, as we all get vaccinated, we can all get out in the world again and see things with our own eyes uh, that uh, more people start to rediscover their sense of perspective so that we can have the conversations that we all need to have about the things that we all commonly feel like we need to solve. Uh, and those things are there. And I think that um, it's, it's frustrating to have the conversation get so detached from facts sometimes. So when are we getting back to like in-person council meetings? Do you have any sense of that? You know, I think that'll be one of the later things to come back. Uh, I think we there may be sort of a hybrid where the council is there, but we're, we're still doing the public hearings uh, remotely. Um, you know, we, we need to get to a pretty high level of public immunization and, and uh, really have the, the pandemic under control before we... Uh, before it would be advisable to just invite the public into a closed space to uh, to have those kinds of hearings. I know last year Cam Gordon was getting antsy about having these remote meetings. He wanted everyone to be getting back. Well, I really at least, at least council members. I think it's bad. It is a bad way to do politics, right? I mean, politics is all about our connections to each other. It's about how do people come together to solve problems, and if people can't come together, uh, <laughs> that makes it harder to solve problems. I mean, you know, part of part of this job is that sometimes we have really tough conversations in public uh, that feel really tense uh, in these meetings. And that's something that happens. And one of the ways that we all get through that and manage to maintain 
you know, healthy relationships where we can work together on the next issue is catching each other in the hallways afterwards to check in on each other, to maintain the sort of social relationship. Uh, and now we have these uh, conversations in a council meeting where we're, you know, at odds with each other about an issue. And then the screen goes dark, right? We all, uh, we're all disconnected and we don't get a chance to do that follow-up. Say, hey, are you okay? Hey, that got kind of rough in there. Hey, I think we might've misunderstood each other about this, uh, whatever the case may be. Uh, and so I do think that that makes it that much harder. And we've had to be, you know, very proactive and intentional where we can about maintaining those relationships, but man, it's hard. Uh, and I do think there's a lot of misunderstanding that goes unresolved uh, among everybody who's participating in politics. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about the strong mayor. It's another thing that I've, the strong mayor proposal is another thing that I think has been kind of hampered by a lack of understanding of what happened in 2020. And the idea that, uh, I don't know, the mayor of all the city departments, the mayor has control over the police. And if you see 2020 as a, disaster caused by a failure of public safety, then the response to that wouldn't be to empower the mayor in the same way over all the other departments. Whether you blame the mayor or not for 2020, like the, the lack of having a strong mayor was not, not the cause. So the question is, like, how do you feel about the strong mayor proposal? Well, I'm, I'm opposed to it, and I'm, I'm opposed to it for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that um, you know, I think there's a version of this where you, you could have clarified what's executive power and what's legislative power, because I actually think there's some need for that clearly, because there's been no accountability, uh, for executive power, right? It's, there's, there's really not a lot of clarity about, uh, what things the mayor is accountable for. And, and I think we've, we've seen some things that I would, I would expect were an executive decision that suddenly get brought to the council or that get brought to some task force or something. Um, so that it's just never, you know, so I, I think that there could be clarity about uh, executive versus legislative in a way that could be good. But the way this was written, it's really to draw the council almost entirely outside of city government. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it's so specific about, you can't ask for non-public data uh, well, under, you know, Data Practices Act categorizes almost all constituent communications as non-public, right? Like we, we would be doxing if we like shared our constituent emails to us, right? And so the things that we currently are able to share among staff that we're not able to share with the public, um, uh, you know, 311 calls that come in through 311 that ought to be dealt with or that we can help, you know, through the council office, a lot of the constituent work that we're doing, uh, they're drawing us out of even that. I mean, we're really going to be operating with the same level of information uh, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, journalist in the wedge who comes to a lot of meetings has, uh, and not much more than that. And, <laughs> you know, I just, I think that uh, that's not what people expect of their government. They expect that they're sending us there and that we're getting information and that we're able to act on it on their behalf, right? Like that's why people vote for representatives. Um, and the way this was drawn, it really, it's so dismissive of council power and, and so aimed at really tamping down council power to a point that I don't know what the point would be of being in council. Um, uh, the way they've, the way they've written it. So, so for me, I think that's, you know, the one problem, but then I think the other thing is 
I mean, they are identifying a problem that I think everybody agrees on, which is that we have not felt like we've had the executive leadership that our city ought to have this term. Um, and I think, you know, there are people who probably have an analysis that says that's about the charter uh, or that that's about, you know, the council overstepping uh, its place in some ways. And there are people who have an analysis that it's about who was occupying that office. And I think that's a decision that people are going to have to make. But I would say right, left and center right now, everybody agrees that we haven't had executive leadership in the way that we would like. Um, you know, the Charter Commission's proposing one solution to it, which is to say uh, it, it must have been it must have been a constitutional issue. Um, and I think, you know, other people might come to a different conclusion. Yeah, I'm a fan of the council system, watching that process happen, seeing, you know, Lisa Goodman get irritated at Cam Gordon, having that hashed out in public, knowing where people stand and what they're proposing, having public hearings. I think that's a good process. So I'm biased against the idea that we need a strong mayor. Um, you know, I was, I was listening to a charter commission meeting and someone who used to work for Mayor Frazier, who now works in St. Paul, Trudy Maloney, was saying every day when she worked in Minneapolis, she wanted a strong mayor system because she worked for the mayor. And when she went to St. Paul and started working, I think she's uh, like coordinates their city council operations. I think that's her role now. She, she finally appreciated the beauty of the Minneapolis system and how we had policies and procedures in Minneapolis that were 10, 15, 20 years ahead of where St. Paul is because when the buck stops in St. Paul, it stops. Like You can use that as a description of an authority structure, the buck stopping, or it's simply a way to stop things from happening and changing and developing new new procedures. So I appreciate the council system in Minneapolis. I think what, what you were talking about or what you were going to mention before was that um, there might be inefficiencies, you know, within our Minneapolis, you know, structure of government that, that need fixing. And I was kind of wondering about, you know, kind of in a, a question about governance, like overall is, you know, how the city sets long-term goals and achieves them, you know, beyond just, the, the legislative executive balance obviously is part of that, but, you know, I'm, I'm used to, you know, whether it's a corporation or a nonprofit or something, having like a board of directors and to, to oversee kind of the, that long-term stability or long-term, you know, um, governance. But it seems like with elected officials, you know, everything is kind of four years, you know, the institutional knowledge can come and go. And um, is, is there something that, that could be, fixed in that sense, uh, or that that might need to be addressed? Is that, is that something that's worth taking a look at? I, I don't personally feel like this proposed strong mayor thing does that. Um, but I, I don't, I'd like to hear your take because uh, I know it's your, your first term. So I'm curious about that. Yeah, no. I, and I'm, I'm also not sure what, what problem the charter commission is trying to solve exactly, but, but I, I, uh, I, I do think that there are things that we could look at. Um, I I know looking at other cities that in a lot of places, there is a city manager uh, who has more direct authority over other department heads, who has more of a, more of an executive leadership role. Um, and that, that council manager system, uh, you know, it has upsides and downsides. 
but I do think that the coordinator role is a confusing one in the city of Minneapolis. And I think if we were going to look at something, I think that might be a place that we um, uh, could look to, uh, to, to think about some continuity and to think about having, uh, you know, some, some clarity of reporting. Um, I think that the, the way the, the current executive committee structure works isn't, doesn't always produce the kind of clarity, um, that, that a council manager structure might, um, in terms of reporting. So I, I, I could see that as something that's worth exploring. I think there's, there's some good examples to look to, um, you know, where they've used that kind of a structure, but obviously any, any structure is only as good as the people running it and their commitment to the, you know, principles of democracy, um, that are, that are intended with that kind of structure. So I, I think in general, we do a pretty good job, uh, making city government work under the structure we have. Um, I think there's things you could fix about the structure. I think we've run into some specific structural barriers, uh, that are, that we can really identify why they're long-term significant structural barriers uh, in public safety, which is why we're proposing making a change to the charter. Um, I, the, I would say that the tone of a lot of the charter commission discussion was a little reactive um, around, you know, it just feels like we elected a progressive council and we don't like what they're doing. So we need to rein them in. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's good governance. I don't think that's a way to make decisions. So one of, one of the things I read in one of the Charter Commission reports may, may have been their summary of department head feedback mm. was, a, was about uh, council, individual council members acting like de facto department heads. Who is that? Do you know who that is? Who is that a reference to? Anyone in particular? You know, I, I, I don't know. And, and, it is frustrating to have a document like that that is anonymous comments that that neither attribute who they're talking about or who's talking um, to and have that document have any weight uh, in yeah. in public debate. Uh, but I will say this: I I, I can tell you that uh, many of the same voices that are saying we got to rein in this council are the same ones who expect me to have significant aldermanic authority to uh, block a particular building that they don't like or to make some sort of arbitrary aesthetic judgment about uh, a road project or a building project. Um, and, you know, I, I've heard stories from previous councils um, and in fact, like a good example that's that's kind of uh arbitrary is uh somebody came to me and said why are you letting my neighbor build a, a garage with a flat roof uh i heard we could only have peaked roofs that the city didn't allow that um and that turns out to have never been true it was it was literally just something that was enforced by a particular council member who had an aesthetic preference for peaked roofs and so you just like they would block that stuff and this was like many council members ago, right? Like this was uh, uh, a, a long ways back. And, and uh, but this person, that happened to be when they were trying to build their garage. So they got the impression that was city policy. 
Uh, and there's little things like that as you drive around the city. Uh, when Once you know those histories, you can start to see like, oh, I just crossed the ward into what was once Joe Dearnett's district or what was once, you know, Walt Dedzik's district or whatever, when you sort of know uh, who advocated for what and why. Um, that's a level of power that we've been very intentional about saying that's actually not how we should be governing. Uh, everybody in the city should be treated fairly. If we're, if we're talking about equity, we should be talking about equity. Um, and deciding which roads get paved which way shouldn't be about individual council members' preference and who's good at po- wielding political power and who pounds on the table and intimidates staff into doing what they want and, and you know, who's sort of good at playing the game. Uh, and it should really be about uh, which residents are most in need of the road repair and everybody gets treated fairly. And to get to principles of equity, we've under, we've, we have voluntarily undone a lot of decision-making I mean, the 2040 plan was uh, at least partially an exercise in taking away council discretion, right? Our goal is that there's a lot fewer variances, that it's a more permissive plan, but then we're not, uh, you know, uh, holding out variances to developers so that the only way they can build is to sort of trade favors with whoever happens to be in office at that moment. Um, that's not actually a, a, a good way to govern. And we really tried to say the rules are the same for everybody. We're going to fight it out once about what the rules are, and then everybody gets to follow the same rules. Um, and that is uh, a change in governance. And I think there are people who used who, who used to govern that way and who still expect that everybody governs that way. Um, and uh, I, I do think that you see elements of that pop into, you know, people's discussions sometimes where they've, things that they've learned and observed over the years on the council uh, you know, or things that they that they replicate. And so they'll have an expectation that they can just demand some change that isn't really theirs to make. Yeah, I live kind of on the border with Ward 7 and Ward 10. And so the Hennepin Avenue discussion that's going on mm. right now, there's a lot of like this Lisa versus Lisa talk about, well, Goodman's obviously going to oppose the the one with the bike, the bike route and Bender is going to support a better street. So it's like, if we had if we had council members that were in agreement on that, it wouldn't really there wouldn't be that competing dynamic. Like who's who's going to own Hennepin Avenue because it's it's the border between the two wards. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's talk about parking minimums. Sure. You're a, you're a co-sponsor of the ordinance to eliminate parking minimums, which is a component of the 2040 plan that was passed a couple of years ago. That's right. Talk about why you're doing that. Uh, Well, uh, for reasons of climate impact, we need to be planning for uh, a future city that relies less on individual cars for transportation. Uh, For affordable housing purposes, we need to be allowing uh, forms of construction that don't have to orient parking as one of the central demands that they're trying to meet. Uh, And as we're trying to create more uh, walkable, bikeable neighborhoods, uh, it makes a lot of sense uh, to give people a wider range of options uh, about how they live and how they build. Uh, so I'm excited about it. I think that it's uh, an important change. I think it's actually one of the um, bigger changes in the 2040 plan uh, that needed to be implemented. And I know a lot of people have been tracking and care a lot about, and, and I think we're getting some good things done uh along along the way not just related to the like there's the big headline change that we're getting rid of parking minimums uh but then we're changing the way we think about 
uh, traffic demand management planning uh, to really incentivize um, thoughtful use of curbside management uh, to encourage design that really thinks about, you know, as people are changing their traffic patterns, how do we modernize that? How do we think about uh, all the different ways that people are utilizing delivery services, that people are utilizing, you know, Uber and Lyft and whatever. So there's probably a lot less need for parking, but maybe more need for some curbside management to make sure that all the, all that pickup and delivery can happen without blocking the street. Uh, And so we're, we're really shifting kind of what we ask of uh, developers to think about how to make their buildings work uh, both for their residents and for everybody using the public realm around those buildings. Anton, do you have any housing questions? Well, you know, or, park- I, or parking. I, I have, I mean, something related to that, just kind of like a, a little anecdote. I think when in 2017, I was looking at, um, you know, everything that we fund with the affordable housing trust fund, uh, you know, you can see how, how that, you know, how, what, what the cost per, per home is on, on a lot of that stuff. And I can remember one project, you know, most of the projects come in around $250,000 per home. You know, we were talking like a, a one bedroom type thing. And one project came in significantly lower than that. And of course, you know, I, I looked at the details of it. I'm like, wow, this one is, I think it was under $200,000 per, per home. What What's the deal with this? And sure enough, it was you know, a 40 something units and 10 parking place spots. And, you know, I, I think that kind of really helps drive home that um, the, the high cost of that. And this was back in 2017. And, um, you know, construction costs have gone up pretty significantly, even in the last four years. And, you know, that's really a way that we can help to, you know, make sure that we, we enable housing that is somewhat affordable. Um, and, and, you know, related to that, uh, I guess related to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund is that, you know, I've, as long as I've worked on housing, I've heard issues about, you know, this, this, the city only spends roughly, I think the Affordable Housing Trust Fund is roughly $10 million, you know, give or take there, there it's, it's kind of fluctuated, but that, that's kind of generally the number. And it feels like that is just, it's always been woefully inac- inadequate. It's not really enough to, to suit needs. It doesn't meet, um, it doesn't meet the needs of those who, who need housing the most. I mean, we can lower the affordability threshold somewhat, but it never really meets that um, the people who need it the most. So Steve, I, I mean, I, I think from, from reading your platform, it sounds like you're in support of uh, the, the public housing levy, reinstating the public housing levy, which I think went away 10 ish years ago. I don't, don't quote me on that, but I guess this is a podcast, so like it's now it's in the public record forever. Yeah, like that's, we're, not, we're not cutting it out, Anton. Yeah, great. Okay, well, um, it, it's my understanding that it was removed during times when uh, we thought that federal funding would kind of last forever, and you know why do we continue to have this? And now you know we see federal funding can easily dry up, and um, whether re- reinstating that levy is something that we can do, so we can build public housing for uh, people who need it the most. Is that something that you support? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, and we've gone under big changes in how we think about affordable housing, right? I mean, we're actually, um, you know, we've gone from in the late nineties, the conversation was about how, you know, if we build a public housing tower, we're, we're causing dysfunction. We're, we're concentrating poverty in a way that, uh, 
you know, causes all kinds of social problems. That was sort of the analysis at the time. And so they were actually knocking down affordable housing, uh, good, dense, affordable housing and trying to, you know, relocate people to scattered site housing in the suburbs. Um, and so we actually, you know, we, we lost some significant, um, uh, affordable housing to that kind of analysis. And I think what's happened now is that um, housing prices have gotten so out of step with wages um, uh, over, you know, kind of the last decades that at this point, if you bought your house 30 years ago and you just like, like say you live in Sheridan or St. Anthony West and you bought your house 30 years ago and you're looking at what, um, affordable at 60% AMI is for the apartments coming up around you, your mortgage is less than the rent. Um, because if you lock that in, um, housing has housing costs have just skyrocketed. And a lot of those costs are, you know, very real, you know, construction costs, et cetera. Um, you know, very hard to change those costs. Uh, but we are to a point now where neighborhoods no longer say you're concentrating poverty and dysfunction in our neighborhoods and all the kind of uh, awful stuff you used to hear 20 years ago. At this point, a lot of neighborhoods are saying we want that 30 percent AMI housing because honestly, I want something that I feel like I could afford if I ever wanted to move out of my uh, house, if I ever wanted to downsize. And and so when when we talk to people about what affordability means, more and more people are really wanting uh, that housing and, and people are seeing the stability, honestly, of the public housing towers that we did invest in that we didn't knock down. Thankfully, um, we have several of them in Ward three and they've been good places for people to live uh, for the long term. And so I think we should be thinking about how can we add to that? Um, the most promising place to start is in taking advantage of the new triplex uh, flexibility on scattered sites. There's a whole lot of scattered site housing that um, is currently in need of repair that could get converted to triplex. Uh, and that's a way of, of getting two extra housing units on each of those lots. Yeah, no. And, and speaking of, you know, the, the, you know, the, the affordability issue, I, I think that also talk touches a little on, you know, another one of the charter amendments, or uh, I think two of them are, are around the rent stabiliz stabilization. Uh, issue and I think one of the big disconnects I think is between people who maybe own homes or ha have those mortgages that they took out uh, you know 10 20 even even five years ago uh, have a very fixed you know flat cost and haven't really understood how much um, how much those rents have gone up especially in in, in the lowest income uh, uh, units that are available um, you know you know those those prices have really gone up significantly and it, when you have that you know fixed mortgage you're you're insulated from that um so so i'm i'm hopeful that that uh, that passes um and I don't, I don't know if you have other other thoughts on on the rent stabilization oh just i, I also hope it passes I was really happy to support that and i think it is one of the things that we have to look at i mean i and it's it's interesting because when you when you talk to um most landlords and you talk about sort of where the cap could get set there's definitely a point where if the if the cap on annual increases is low enough it starts to create some real tension right people are worried about like what if they're growing repair costs and property taxes going up and whatever you hear those arguments but when you ask people what's the most you ever raised rent most landlords um it's under five percent 
um, for sure. And for most of them, if they've got a good tenant, I mean, if they've got a steady tenant, they're 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 raising it much more in the three percent range. And so, so we're not going to have much of an impact if we pass that. But then you do talk to some people where they say, you know, these projects just don't pencil if you do this to us. And I'm asking, well, if you're writing a project, if you're trying to build a project right now, and you've got on your spreadsheet six or seven percent rent growth year over year, uh, which is going to far exceed wages, which is wage growth, right? Like, which is going to far exceed uh, uh, economic growth in general, you're just building an unsustainable project. So at some point, we just have to look at people and say, you're building something that's actually not good in our city. Like, your plan is going to either fail or it's going to fail to serve us well. Um, But, uh, you know, there there are developments um, that we shouldn't be catering our policy to. Um, and then there's a lot of housing development that we really do need to see happen. I was listening to a landlord Zoom call, which I occasionally do. It's a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> you, you do it so we don't have to. Yeah, Michael Rainville. Well, they're trying to cut me out. They're, they made the, the meeting harder to watch, yeah. but I got through anyway. Michael Rainville was the guest, and they were doing a Q&A. And he revealed that... Uh, is it Sonder? Is that the short-term rental company? That is one of them, yeah. He mentioned one of his trusted housing advisors when he was talking to landlords. Uh-huh. Is is her name Elisa? Sure, yeah. Uh, Mulher? Yeah. yeah. And I, I imagine she has not kind things to uh, say about you because of the, the short-term rental. How would you describe that? Not quite a ban, but... It's not a ban, but we but we put pretty strict regulations. We're one of the stricter regulatory environments for short term rentals in the country now. Um, and you know, honestly, I uh, I certainly listen to Elisa. I think she's very smart, um, and I think Sonder is, in many ways, at least one of the um, the better neighbors of the hedge fund backed short term rental companies. Like their 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 policies are generally like I mean they're they're, they're kind of the, the good version of that business model. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, a part of this job is being able to say no to people, even if you personally like them. And even if you uh, are sympathetic in some ways, if what they're trying to do is not good for the city, um, then at some point you have to say no to them. And that's what happens. So I don't know if she got bad things to say. She certainly didn't get the yes that she was looking for from me. Um I, I just I just assumed because Michael Rainville talked about her as a trusted advisor. I assumed that uh, yeah, and she and she, she introduced him at his, his, and she introduced him at his campaign kickoff. And, uh, I mean, she's she seems to be very active in his campaign. I mean, she's a she lives. Well, in I'm not breaking news. I thought it was breaking news. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, no, but I think it's uh, you know I, I I do think it's you know you one of the th- ways that you should be assessing candidates is who are their advisors, right? Like who are the people who endorse them? Who are the people who? Um, uh, who they listen to. And, and, uh, I, you know, I worked on that issue and, um, uh, definitely had to say no to some people in, in that industry. And there's some people who are upset about it. And that is, that is part of the job. And I think it was the right thing to do for people in Minneapolis. Okay. Let's, let's talk about Cam Gordon again. One of my favorite topics. So he, he will often say when he talks about public safety, like when I was elected in 2005, like I thought I was going to do all these things on public safety. And it turns out when you get in the job, you understand the charter gives the mayor that authority. 
So the question to you, not necessarily about police or or mayoral power, but what what did you find out about the job when you got into it that was completely different from what you expected coming in? Maybe something frustrating? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I definitely think there's sort of two things that come to mind for me. One of them is uh, my experience of City Hall had always been as a community organizer uh, going to City Hall and, uh, you know, doing sort of grassroots lobbying uh, on progressive issues. And so I really thought like that was my image of what working city hall was going to be like. Um, and it turns out that like most organizations, uh, most like grassroots organizations that are running campaigns have the bandwidth to do a campaign like that, that, that involves them coming and visiting at city hall, maybe once a year, if they're super active. Um, but that the truth is like, I really campaigned, uh, to work with a group of people. And then most of them are like, okay, cool. Now we're working on legislative stuff at the state Capitol. Um, glad you got in, do some good stuff. Uh, and then I never really heard from them. Uh, and then in the meantime, I constantly hear from a set of lobbyists whose job it is to try to constantly be talking to me. Um, and so I was, I was surprised by how easily and quickly, um, you start to be surrounded by people who represent a particular perspective and you have to very proactively fight against that. You have to be very intentional about how you divide up your time, about how you proactively reach out to people to, uh, to get meetings uh, with uh, the people who you ran to represent uh, because most people are going on with their lives and uh, also often don't feel entitled to get a meeting with their council members. So they don't know that they can pick up the phone and call me where like Jackie Cherry Holmes sure knows how to call everybody's phones and try to get a meeting. Right. And so, uh, so you just, you end up, uh, you end up really having to fight. It just feels like you're, you're constantly trying to swim upstream to, uh, uh, against a pretty strong current to, to be meeting with, the people you pictured yourself representing and who got you into office. Um, and so, so that was, I think the first thing that was surprising uh, and that's sometimes a little bit bewildering when, when you're sort of in the middle of some big fights and, and uh, sort of realize that it feels really big and important to you. And then you're looking around and most people just aren't paying attention to city government. Um, it's yeah. basically a story of how Steve Fletcher lost all his activist friends. They went away, <laughs> they disappeared. <laughs> lose them but they're busy you know like everybody's got other stuff going on and like they sent me so they didn't have to think about it like we got you know we we got we got Fletcher in he'll do good stuff and we'll talk to him in four years um and you know so so that that wasn't what I pictured and I think that's that's part of how it ended up being and then the other thing that I think has been surprising is is nobody really talks about how much of governing is about uh um getting staff aligned with you and moving on work to get it done and and getting your work prioritized with city staff. Um, and so there's a ton of internal uh, political work that happens that I think is just not visible from the outside and is not necessarily something that people understand, uh, you know, when you're running for the job, that you're going to spend a lot of time trying to it's not about winning public support or your colleague support. It's about like getting, uh, getting on the to-do list of 
you know, the right staff person in public works to get something done. Um, yeah, that's and, that's something that Lisa Bender mentioned in her like exit interview with maybe the Minnesota reformer. Like, yeah. We've been trying to do this thing for years and it's finally coming through now just because it's been hard to get staff to take up, take up the job and do it. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of competing priorities. I don't think there's necessarily like malicious intent. I don't want to like throw staff under the bus in any particular way, but like, I, I, I think that there's definitely been, there's been things that I could work on where there was at least a staff person who really was interested in it and who had aligned with what, what they were hoping to get done in some way uh, where that just created a little bit of wind at our backs to get things done. Right. So I think that like um, the clerk's office and the IT department being interested in data privacy and the ways that they were, was one of the ways that we were able to, uh, you know, move that work forward in a way that I think is, is good. But I think a lot of times people just assume that as council members, we can just say we're working on this and that that'll just happen. And um, that is not how it happens. Right. So I, I, I do think that in thinking about, um, you know, in, in thinking about good governance, I don't know that I don't think the Charter Commission proposal fixes this. Uh, but I do actually think about, you know, how can we through our committee structures and through the ways that we govern in public sort of make that a little more visible. Cam actually had like a pretty good um, sort of public work list in the housing committee back when that was still meeting. Uh, that they actually voted on and approved in a way that made it a little more transparent, at least like what what staff were working on and when they were planning to deliver on that work, et cetera. Um, so I think there are ways that we can think about better governance so that that process is a little more transparent. You may not have an answer to this. It's probably a uh, question better for the mayor, but he won't come on my podcast. <laughs> uh, so there's been a lot of talk about the cops, all the cops who have left the job in Minneapolis and how this is a, this is a great big opportunity to replace them with better cops, whether they're younger, more progressive. And I don't, I don't know if anyone knows if we know who is leaving and who is coming in and how we judge, maybe we're losing the best cops we have and we're replacing them with worse cops. I don't know. Is there any any analysis? Is anyone looking at who is leaving to um, like make that assessment? You know what I've been told is that it's a mix, uh, I, and I don't think that I don't think that right now we have a, a common set of metrics or understanding or analysis that would tell us where I might even agree with the um, officer I'm talking to or you know whoever I'm sort of asking for their their take on this about whether they were the right people to leave or the wrong people to leave. Um, but I, but I, what I've heard from people who, uh, you know, work in MPD is that it's a mix, that there are people who, uh, who they thought of as really good public servants who they were sorry to see go. And then there were people who it was like, you know, probably, okay. Uh, they were leaving and, and, uh, I, I don't know what that mix is. Um, I also know that, you know, anybody who really overestimates uh, the value of, of the opportunity to replace them, um, it does that at their peril. Because I, I think we, we have been trying a theory of, you know, new training programs. And if we're thoughtful about recruiting and, you know, Chief Redondo has been personally interviewing every recruit candidate for years uh, to make sure we're picking the right people. And, and 
I don't see that having the impact that we would have probably hoped to see by now um, with, with as much recruiting as he's had an opportunity to do. And so I, I do hope that we recruit good people and that we train them in the best way that we're able to train them. Um, but I, I am not among the people who think that that is a pathway to reforming the police department. Okay. I think, I think this is technically my last question. It's an election this year. We're electing a new city council, a new mayor. What, what do you need from the next mayor, whether it's the same mayor we have now, what do we need from the mayor to collaborate with the city council on public safety? Uh, you know, we need someone who's willing to, uh, we need someone who's willing to listen to us and, uh, who, um, and who will really dig into tough questions with us. Um, you know, one of the things that I think has been challenging is, is, there's been times that we've wanted to study an issue. And I think there's been a reluctance to study an issue because when we, when you study something, you discover the things that are going wrong. Um, and that can be bad press that can be, um, you know, that can make the city look bad. Um, and, and so there's been a reluctance to actually sometimes even ask the tough questions. I actually proposed a study on traffic enforcement, uh, in 2019. Um, at that time, activists were asking us to consider uh, a moratorium on equipment stops uh, because of the racial bias in uh, in those stops. And and I kind of said, you know, I think one of the things we want to figure out is whether if we say you can't do equipment stops anymore, they're just going to come up with some other pretext. Is it really is the problem really that we're doing these pretext stops that are, aren't about traffic at all, um, but are about targeting black drivers to see if we can catch them doing something else. Um, and so I propose that we do an ethnographic study uh, where we have researchers ride along and see how they're making these decisions and see how they're getting entered into the database and um, we'll try to get a better idea for how these decisions are getting made about who to pull over and why. Um, and the mayor and the chief decided not to do that. Um, and I, you know, I, I was pretty frustrated about it because that traffic enforcement in particular is something that's very hard to justify how we would pass a policy um, under the current charter uh, because so much of it is state law and then is, is internal police policy about how they enforce state law. Um, so it's really outside of the council's domain. Um, and I just, you know, at that time was not able to move the mayor and the chief on it. Uh, so I would say a, a mayor and a chief who are willing to admit we have a big problem. Uh, we're willing to work with stakeholders and counsel to solve it. We're willing to ask tough questions, even if they reveal mistakes of the past. Um, and we're willing to make dr fairly dramatic structural changes uh, when, when we identify solutions or things that we can improve. I mean, that's what we need. And, uh, you know, it, it's, there's, there's certainly room for us to uh, make a lot of uh, really important changes. It would be great to have someone who, hopefully, the charter change passes uh, on public safety, and so we're we're looking at someone. Uh, the next mayor is going to be the person, hopefully, who is uh, appointing a commissioner of uh, the new Department of Public Safety, 
and is really able to set the tone for how we govern together uh, over this new department. Uh, so I, I think there's a there's an opportunity to really think creatively and collaboratively in a way that could produce really fantastic outcomes for our city. Anton, do you have any final questions? Um, I don't have any final questions. I mean, we're, we're pushing really? a, a long after po- all after all that. A long, we're pushing a long podcast at this point. So it's true. I just um, talk and talk sometimes. <laughs> okay. I'm debating whether to make you do this, but maybe I will. But if you could read, if you could read this mean tweet directed at you. Oh, thanks. No, I I, I love this kind of uh, the, the, this kind of social media. Um, it's one of, one of the things that makes public service great. Um, so yeah, somebody named Speedbump25 wrote, "Just once, I would like to see Fletcher on the front lines. That dude is the softest kind of weenie. All talk and then goes and hides." That's good. That's a good way to end. And I, and I will put the, we're going to end on that note? I think so. I'm going to put the tweet up on the screen. And, uh, you're going to read it? Now, Steve, you're going to hide. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, uh, that's 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 how this works, I guess. We're pushing a 90-minute podcast. And uh, I, have to, I have to wrap up now. Thank you to my co-host, Anton Schiefer, for joining me for our interview with Steve Fletcher, who is the incumbent council member in Ward 3 running for re-election. Maybe we should plug caucus.dfl.org for people who want to have a voice in Ward 3 and across the city. And uh, I think that's the end of the episode. Goodbye, guys. All right. Bye. Thanks for having me. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now.